Good morning again. These uh, last two years, in particular, have been obviously different, but they've also been years in which I think two words have been especially prominent. Viruses and vaccines. Would that we lived in a world without any viruses, but we don't. And so vaccines protect us against viruses, or at least they should protect us. They at least protect us from a severe form of virus. What does a vaccine do? A vaccine takes some small part, formally a causative agent of a disease, and it puts that in you so that the wonder that is the human body can produce antibodies that fight against the disease. We also have antivirus software for your computer. What does that do? That detects and that can delete malicious code to protect your computer from malware that will get into the systems and harm it. Now, some of you are doctors or nurses, and some of you are computer nerds. And you're coming to my mind right now, and I'm not going to say your name. I personally don't think there's anything exciting about a vaccine or antivirus software. All apologies. Nothing. But I do think they're necessary. And why do I think that? Because they protect what is worth protecting lives, and in a different way, because of the information they have, computers. And if they do their jobs, you may not ever know it. You simply might not get sick. Your computer just keeps working. This morning, we're in a passage of Scripture That's kind of like a theological vaccine. It's meant to inoculate you, to protect you from a theological virus, the virus of false teaching. We're in 2 Peter, and remember the Apostle Peter is on his way to death. And what does he want? He wants you to live in the world as it really is. He wants you to be prepared for what's coming and what will be. And so here he gives us a kind of vaccine to protect us and to prepare us to be on guard against spiritual disease. And this morning we want to receive what is good medicine for us from 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2. My prayer is that this chapter will activate spiritual antibodies in you and protect you from teachers and from teaching that are false. So here's the the main point, the big part of the vaccine this morning. False teachers believe lies about the end. False teachers believe lies about the end And so they live sinful lives in the present. 
They believe lies about the end, and so they live sinful lives in the present. What Peter does in this chapter is he gives us four very basic truths about false teachers. And we're going to walk through the passage and simply observe those four truths. And the first truth I want you to see about false teachers is simply this. False teachers will come. False teachers will come. That's the first point. And that's in verses 1 to 3. False teachers will come. Look down at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What does Peter want you to be certain of? Well, we've seen he wants you to be certain that the kingdom of Christ is coming. That when he saw the transfigured Christ in all of his glory, it was a sneak peek, an assurance of Christ's return in glory. And he commanded us, in light of the return of Christ, to pay attention to the sure prophetic word until Christ comes. Because that word was given to us by prophets who spoke not from man, but from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. But teaching of the sure prophetic word won't be the only teaching in this age. There will be false teachers. Now, some of you actually went to medical school. And I hope what you did there was you learned everything you could about the human body, what makes it healthy and well, so that you could diagnose disease. In seminary, we learn right doctrine. We study what is true so that we can detect heresy. We also learned about heresies, about their nature, how they arose. Why do we do that? Because whether it's disease for doctors or it's heresies for teachers, Combating both is at the heart of our work. It's vital to the lives of those that the Lord puts under our care. And so Peter is clear, church be prepared, false teachers will come. Now, Very obviously, what does he say? False teachers, one, verse one, teach what is false. Verse two, they're characterized by sexual sin. Verse three, and greed. He's going to expand on this more. But notice, they do teach what is false. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will deny the master who bought them. Secretly. They don't warn you. They don't stand up and say, I'm a false teacher. They do this with subtlety. And you have to be vigilant. Notice they come from among you. It looks like they're Christians, but by their teaching, they will deny 
Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And that will lead to their judgment. You will have to identify them by what they teach and how they live. It doesn't matter if they're funny or nice. What they teach is dangerous. As I was thinking about us, I I think we could be tempted to say, I'd never be susceptible to that. I don't want you to be so anti-vax spiritually that you don't think you need this from Peter. False teachers and teaching creeps into the church in very subtle ways. And you have to know the truth in order to guard against it. Christ's lordship was won in the weakness of the cross. False teachers will distort the cross. So do you realize that in the cross, there are no deficiencies on Jesus' end? Neither the covenant is deficient, nor his compassion, nor his promises. Any lack of the equation is on our end. So how can God choose not to heal someone when he has already purchased their healing? Was his blood not enough for all sins or was it just enough for certain sins? Were the stripes he bore only for certain illnesses or just certain seasons of time? When he bore stripes in his body, it was the payment for our miracle. He had decided to heal. You cannot decide not to buy something when it's already been purchased. I don't want you to stop there. What I just preached to you was total heresy. Total heresy. I just taught you that full healing for all sickness was purchased at the cross. And so if you get sick, there's a deficiency on your end. That's false. Did you catch that? It was subtle. I tried to be subtle. Perfect healing will come. God does heal. But in this age, there will be suffering and there will be sickness. We are living in the already and the not yet. And I did that obviously on purpose to make the point that false teaching is subtle and to show you, you must be vigilant. And I also want you to never hesitate to ask me or a pastor here a question about something you've been taught from this pulpit ever. I also want you to know that what I just taught, I took from a very popular teacher, Bill Johnson at Bethel. Friends, it is not just terrible doctrine. It's also cruel to ever lead others to think we can always expect healing or even resurrections from the dead. When the scriptures teach, all of that will come in fullness only when the Son of God comes from heaven. Now, does Bethel produce songs that say true things? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do want to warn you very clearly against the teaching ministry of Bethel and Bill Johnson. Feel free to talk to me after the service. I'm staying for lunch. Pastors are called to protect you and to shepherd you. 
but you too need to know the real so that you can identify the counterfeit. And the whole congregation must guard against false teaching. That's you. So are you growing in sound doctrine so that you can identify what is false? Number two, false teachers will be characterized by sin. Verse two, notice many will follow their sensuality. That's sexual sin. It's the kind of disease that is contagious. People will like what they permit, so they go along. And what's the result? It's that the way of truth is blasphemed. Now, blaspheme is the right word. Whether through abuse or adultery, sexual sin speaks irreverently about the way of truth. After Jesus rose from the dead, that was true. And it's true now. Robbie Zacharias, a report from the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States. The way of truth blasphemed. And greed. Verse 3, they they exploit Christians with false words because they want money. That's a prominent symptom of false teachers. They want money. So even if you aren't sure, ask yourself about a teacher. Are they holding out to me the great worth and majesty and glory of God? Or are they using God to get money? They're greedy. Pay attention to them. Do they teach what is false? Do they live for what is false? Life and doctrine. But you also have to be sure of this about false teachers. Second part of verse 3. They are headed for destruction. It's not asleep. Their condemnation is not idle. Peter is emphasizing that word destruction. Verse 1. They bring in destructive heresies. They bring on themselves swift or sudden destruction. Verse 3. Their destruction is not asleep. So that word destruction means future final definitive judgment and it is exactly what the false teachers deny that's why they're living as they do so at stake in teaching is eternity for life or for destruction friends until jesus comes false teachers are not going away be aware Be vigilant and be certain that even though they deny it, false teachers will be judged. That's the second point. False teachers will be judged. They will be judged. That's verse 4 to the first part of verse 10. Look down at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Eschatology is the theological word for the doctrine or the study of last things. And eschatology affects ethics. What you believe about the end will affect the way that you live in the present. What's the problem with false teachers? Here they do not believe in the literal return of Jesus, in final judgment. And so they believe you can live how you want. Eschatology affects ethics. You tell me what someone believes about the end, and I will tell you why they're living as they do. Why do brutal authoritarian dictators do what they do? They do not believe in a final personal judgment from the holy and transcendent God. Why do false teachers teach and live as they do? They do not believe that the risen Christ is coming to judge and that his holy and inspired word will be the standard for judgment. And they want you to believe that and to follow them. Interesting here, most of this part of the world where we live takes final judgment for granted. The Western world thinks it's a joke. Do you realize from the church's earliest days there were those who thought final judgment was a joke? They laughed at it. So Peter, to inoculate you against this, is he shows us the pattern of how God has worked in history with this drumbeat of if, if. Verse 4, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Uh, Jude writes about this in his letter. Uh, you might think that's pr- about the fall of the angels from heaven. I think given the similarities with Jude, this is most likely referring to Genesis 6, when angels left their boundaries and engaged in sexual acts with women. They were not spared, but cast into hell or the underworld, and they wait final judgment. Verse 5, God judged the ancient world, all the ungodly. Friends, the story of Noah and his boat is not just a cute little story for children. It's a revelation of the judgment of God on the world. He was a herald of righteousness by his life, by his words. He would have told the world why he was building the boat. Judgment by rain is coming. And the ancient world thought it was silly. Noah, they thought, was the false teacher. Will we be as foolish as the ancient world? Who will you listen to when they speak of judgment? Notice God preserved Noah and just seven others. Now ask yourself what shocks you more. That God judged the entire world or that he actually rescued eight people? Your answer to that question will reveal what you really think we deserve as sinners. And one more, verse 6. If God also judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he turned them to ashes. He condemned them. I imagine the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah thought the idea of judgment was a hilarious thing to laugh at until judgment came. God didn't ask them. He didn't request their permission. 
He judged. And they were a type, an example of something greater to come. Now notice again, God didn't just bring judgment. Verse 7, he also saved. Just as he did with Noah, so also with Sodom and Gomorrah, God rescued righteous Lot. Now, you're probably like me, you think righteous Lot. We, we know how grievous his sin was. But he was righteous by virtue of his right relationship with God. And he proved his righteousness by receiving the angelic visitors. He protected them. And even though the pull of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been great, remember Lot's wife, Lot obeyed when he was commanded to leave the city. And that departure from the city, that leaving was evidence of his cleaving to God. So if God did not spare the angels, if he did not spare the ungodly in the flood, if he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, be sure God will bring destruction to false teachers. God's actions in history teach us about his work in the future. God knows how to judge. God is able to judge and God will judge. And at the same time, God knows how to save. God is able to save and God will save. Peter holds out God's salvation of Noah and Lot to show, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment as they indulge in their lust and despise authority. What can we learn here? First, be clear, God will judge false teachers. When God has judged in the past, his judgment has been exact. And God is not embarrassed about his judgment. I think we can see our small view of sin by our shock at the judgment of God and our entitlement or expectation of the salvation of God. God's past judgment guarantees future judgment. Brothers and sisters, the cross tells us how seriously God takes sin, how seriously he takes salvation and judgment and grace, how he will not relax his infinitely high and holy standards to achieve either. And so Christians rejoice. Our judgment was taken on Jesus at the cross. And we can rejoice in coming judgment because it means our God will vindicate his name. He will vindicate the sacrifice of his son. He will vindicate righteousness when he judges what is evil and false. Be warned against teachers that downplay judgment. It's a lie. It's not motivated by love. It's self-serving. Contrary to Rob Bell or any teacher that denies hell, love does not win when God overlooks evil. When God does not vindicate what is good, love won at the cross when the real demands of justice were satisfied in Jesus Christ. Love will win when those who are bought by the Son of God in the flesh are vindicated when he comes. What do you think about coming judgment?
Are you embarrassed of it? Are you angry about it? Or do you rejoice? Because it means your faith will be vindicated. Your life answers that question. Eschatology affects ethics. You tell me how you're living, I tell you, how you what you believe about the end. But also, God will save. Now, did you see this pattern? In wrath, God remembered mercy. What did you, what do you notice as you think about Noah and Lot? They were both outnumbered by unbelief and unbelievers around them. Both would have been tempted to doubt the Lord and his word. It would have seemed the world had triumphed. God had forgotten, but God rescued them. This is one way God was preparing his people for the cross. In wrath, God remembers mercy. There's no clearer place where wrath and mercy meet than at the cross. Jesus, who lived the life we've not lived, who died that death we deserve to die, he appeared to have been abandoned completely. The righteous sufferer appeared to have been conquered by the wicked world, but God raised him. The only one who was truly righteous, rescued. So our sin deserves a real judgment. We've watched this war. It's horrible. The unjust war against Ukraine, the enemies that these countries are. It's nothing compared to the enemies that we are by nature to God. He doesn't owe us a treaty. His son came to live and die for sinners, not just to pardon us, but to bring us into the family. I was reminded again this week, the surprise of the scriptures is not that God is infinitely holy and just. The great surprise is how loving he is how kind he is. And God will judge. God's goodness is so shocking that he has judged the sin of everyone who would ever repent and believe in his son on the cross. Come to Christ by faith. Turn from sin that deceives you and blinds you and believe on Jesus and find life in his name. Be certain of God's coming judgment but also be certain of his coming salvation. The fact that we're outnumbered, the fact that we feel powerless only sets us up for a greater rescue. Believe Jesus will return. False teachers live and teach in a way that denies it. Future judgment encourages you to present faithfulness. When you see your Lord and are changed to be like him. False teachers will be judged, and those in Christ will be rescued. Next we learn, false teachers are wicked. False teachers are wicked. Look at the second part of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, 
like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You, you, you can feel the, the immorality, right? They're, they're arrogant. They're bold and willful. They, they blaspheme the glorious ones. That refers to evil angels, demons. Glorious because they are creatures made by God. And what, what, what Peter's saying is they don't believe these demonic beings have power and so mock them by their lives because they don't think that they're susceptible to demonic attack. So you can overestimate the power of the demonic and you can underestimate the power of the demonic. Peter says, verse 11, angels, that's good angels, are greater in might and power and do not pronounce a judgment against them. What does he mean? They recognize their boundaries. They first recognize that it is God who will judge them. And two, Though the power of the demonic, demons are created by God, created as good, they fail, is under the sovereignty of the Lord, angels do not take lightly the real power that demons do have in this age. They would not fear them, but they do understand that in this time between the resurrection and the return, they have power. And they don't scoff at them like the false teachers False teachers are like irrational animals. They, they follow base instincts. What happens to irrational animals? They're born to be caught and destroyed. They blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant, destroyed in their destruction. There's that word again. Isn't that what people marked by pride do? Prideful people, instead of treating what should be treated with reverence and fear, they mock it. They blaspheme coming judgment, and it's what will destroy them. They're not just prideful, they're immoral. It's overwhelming. They revel in the daytime. Revelry takes place normally at night. They do it in the daytime. They revel in their deceptions when they feast with you, probably the Lord's Supper or some fellowship meal associated with it. Deceptively, they involve themselves in the church in the intimate meals of the church. Their eyes, verse 14, are full of adultery. They see women as opportunities for sexual sin. It's insatiable. They're not satisfied. They entice unsteady souls, new converts, young Christians, those not anchored in the truth. They, they prey on them because they're easy to entice and they're greedy. Verse 16, they've gone the way of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet for hire. Read about him beginning in Numbers 22 through 24 and other places in Numbers. 
he'd tell you what you wanted to hear based on what you could pay. Motivated by greed, not by God. And God rebuked him. A donkey spoke to him to stop his madness. An irrational animal could see spiritual reality more clearly than the prophet. False teachers are filled with pride, immorality, greed. Their ethics reveals their eschatology. Very plainly, life must match confession when it comes to teachers. Life must match confession. Not perfection, but certainly faithfulness. Repentance. So I I want for you, even if you can't discern exactly what it is that's wrong with someone's teaching, for all of this to hopefully help you as as a vaccine to discern something's off. Above reproach is a qualification for a pastor. Self-controlled, not puffed up. Consider who the teacher is. You know, this is, this is why life in the local church, where you know the elders and they know you, is good for all of us. Shepherds should be among the sheep. The sheep among the shepherds, not shielded by green rooms, trying to stay away. Seen and known up close. And, and I don't think size of a church has anything to do with that for faithful shepherds. Your character of your teachers matters. John Owen wrote this. If a man teach uprightly and walk crookedly, more will fall down in the night of his life than he built in the day of his doctrine. How true this has been even recently. Notice what else Peter says in verse 13. They are blots and blemishes. What's a blot or a blemish? It's something small, isn't it? Maybe it can be a little bigger, but it destroys what is beautiful. What do the blots of false teachers destroy? They destroy the beauty of the bride of Christ. How beautiful is the church to Jesus? We know from Ephesians at the end of this age, Christ will present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. False teachers want to destroy the beauty of the bride, and Christ will not let anyone destroy his bride. And so anyone who would serve as a minister or a teacher in the church must be careful to guard the what, the truth, and the who, the sheep that is so precious to Christ. We take the what and the who seriously here. We take the glory and the beauty of Christ and the glory and the beauty of his bride seriously. And we want you to take that seriously in this body. All of us must be discerning. You as the congregation have a job to discern, to detect, to diagnose, and to affirm True teaching to detect and diagnose false teaching. False teachers are wicked. They're immoral. And finally, fourthly, false teachers will lead you astray. False teachers will lead you astray. That's verse 17 through verse 22. 
Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow, in the mire. What do they want to do? They want to take you where you don't want to go. A waterless spring looks like it will give you what you want, but there's no water. A mist, different than a storm. You you expect rain, but it's just a mist. Confusing, misleading. They bring confusion, not clarity. And notice again, judgment, utter darkness has been reserved for them. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They, they keep being associated with sexual sin. Here with new converts, those who are barely escaping from those in error, they're, they're those who've just started to live the Christian life, trying to separate from their former way of, of living. How enticing it is to hear teaching that tells you you don't have to submit to the sexual ethics of Scripture. It's not new that there's teachers that tell you you do not have to deny yourself and your desires sexually to follow Jesus. It's been around a long time. But they won't deliver on what they promise. Verse 19, they, they can't make good on the freedom they promise because they are slaves to corruption. Why? Corruption has overcome them. So they look like they're free. They're not. What is freedom in its truest sense? It's being liberated to obey God, to enjoy God. So part of the vaccine against false teaching is is understanding that what appears to be freedom and liberation is, is wickedness and bondage. They are enslaved to corruption. So the great philosopher Bob Dylan said this, It was meant to be a little funny. You got to serve somebody. I'm not going to do his voice. You got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. That's what creatures do. We serve. The question is, does your master lead you to bondage or to freedom? You must discern who they serve. They're dangerous. They, They seem to be Christian. That's what Peter, I think, is saying in verse 20. Escape the defilements of this world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But entangled in them again, they are overcome. So they're, they're worse off than they, where they were before. I do not think Peter is teaching you can lose your salvation. I think that would contradict the rest of Scripture. I think it would contradict First Peter, where he describes Christians as those being guarded by God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
especially even in his greeting in the way that he refers to Christians. Peter is, is speaking of how they appeared. They looked like they were Christians, but they were that bad soil that Jesus taught about. They proved they weren't genuine. They went out from us because they were not of us. That's why we need to be careful and clear about the gospel. A false gospel inoculates you against the real thing. If someone appears to be following Jesus and they fall away, they're in a much worse place than they were before. The last state is worse than the first. Their false Christianity was a a kind of vaccine against the real thing. I think that's what makes biblical Christianity hard in a nominally Christian culture. There's all this familiarity with the faith that's not real. I don't want that for you. I don't want you to be vaccinated enough to where you're, you're hardened against what is real. That only exposes you, exposes false teachers to greater judgment. So don't lose sight of this privilege to hear the scriptures taught, to hear Christ proclaimed. And Jesus told those in Bethsaida and Chorazin, it would be worse for them on the day of judgment than Tyre and Sidon because they saw and heard Christ in the flesh. Greater privileges spiritually comes with greater stewardship. Be careful with what you're doing as you come here week in and week out to receive this as a stewardship. Look at verse 21. It's better they had not known the way of righteousness, the holy commandment, and turned back. Greater judgment. They want to lead you astray. They're like a dog that goes back to its vomit or a sow, a pig, who after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So dogs weren't cute pets in the ancient world. I don't think a pig has ever been cute. What do they do? They go back to what is gross, to what is disgusting. That's what false teachers do. They leave what is good for what is terrible. They don't lead you to Christ. They lead you to what is awful, will will destroy you. So what do we need together to learn about false teachers? First, consider the end. Consider the end. False teachers have it. They discount what Christ will do. And so they live sinful lives in the present. Now, what about you? How much does the return of Christ weigh on you, motivate you, propel you? Brothers and sisters, a, a, a one-time decision or an experience or even a prayer prayed is not the mark of a true Christian. Persevering in faith and repentance is the mark of a genuine Christian. A disciple follows in the way of the master. A disciple knows that what the master says is good. We have a good master. His commands are good. They are not burdensome. He came to free us, not to enslave us. He keeps his word. He will come for us. He will complete our salvation. Run away from teachers that undermine our Lord, that by their lives deny his return. Run toward teachers who live and teach in view of it. Second, 
Consider what is at stake. Consider what is at stake. So let's continue this medical analogy. Sin anesthetizes, I practice that word, sin anesthetizes you against the things of eternity. Sin causes you to think that the pleasures of this world are ultimate. Sin causes you to think heaven and hell really aren't at stake. It dulls you. But listen to Peter. Heaven and hell are at stake. What you listen to matters eternally. So if you're listening to a teacher, are they wanting you to follow in the way of Jesus or do they seem to be offering you something new? Jesus was resolute in going to the cross. He told us clearly that if we would follow him, we would take up our cross. So what part of Jesus' teaching are you tempted in your soul to downplay? What is it? Identify it. Think about it. Be careful. You can find teachers that will serve you in that. In the Christian life, we're never more alive than when we die to our passions. And that dying requires grace from start to finish. Death before resurrection life, suffering before glory. Watch out for teachers, even any specially popular ones that tell you otherwise. The scriptures show us a glorious God, a glorious gospel because eternal glory or destruction is at stake. This is weighty. It's not light. The risen Jesus, through his apostles, warns us. False teachers will come. And why does he warn us? Because he's jealous for his bride. He loves his bride. He seeks to protect her from anyone and any teaching that will harm her. Our beauty is his great project. It's what he's doing. And he's going to complete this project. That's exactly what false teachers don't believe. They do not believe that the risen Christ will complete what he started. Whose word will you believe? Praise God, one day we will not need vaccines against anything anymore, especially against false teaching, because the groom will come and he will come in power and to the surprise of the world yet again his people will know the joy of being rescued it is the height of wisdom to live and wait in view of his coming